All right, uh, uh, Exodus chapter 11, if you'd like to open your Bibles there. Exodus chapter 11. Last week we started a series on the feasts of the Lord, calling it Fantastic Feasts and Where We Find Them. The Death Star incited fear throughout the galaxy far, far away, according to, and this is a real website, Wikipedia. Yeah, right. That's news to me. I'm sorry. The Death Star, known officially as the DS-1 Orbital Battle Station, also known as the Death Star 1, the first Death Star, Project Stardust internally, and simply the ultimate weapon in early development stages, was a moon-sized deep space mobile battle station constructed by the Galactic Empire, designed to fire a single planet-destroying super laser powered by massive crystals. Far more terrifying on a personal and national level was the destroyer that killed the firstborn of Egypt on the night of God's deliverance of his people. It was the first Passover. We read in Exodus 11, 4 through 7, Then Moses said, Thus says the Lord, About midnight I will go out into the midst of Egypt, and all the firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sits on his throne, even to the firstborn of the female servant who is behind the handmill, and all the firstborn of the animals. Then there shall be a great cry throughout all the land of Egypt, such as was not like it before, nor shall be like it again. But against none of the children of Israel shall a dog move its tongue against man or beast, that you may know that the Lord does make a difference between the Egyptians and Israel. Was this an angel, the angel of death, as we normally say? Well, it might surprise you, but the Bible doesn't say the killing of the firstborn would be carried out by an angel. The word for destroyer is more like just a job description of what happens. The destruction may have been carried out by an angel, but we can't be certain. God did dispatch angels on uh, missions to kill. When Israel's king Hezekiah had the threat of the enormous Assyrian army near him, we read, that's from 2 Kings, that night the angel of the Lord went out and put to death 185,000 in the Assyrian camp. When the people got up the next morning, there were all the dead bodies. So Sennacherib, king of Assyria, broke camp and withdrew. He returned to Nineveh and stayed there. Here's another one from Numbers 22. When the prophet Baal was on his way to try to curse the children of Israel, the Lord opened his eyes to see an angel with a drawn sword resisting him. When God sent judgment on a sin of David, and I quote, the Lord sent a plague upon Israel from morning until the appointed time, from Dan to Beersheba, 70,000 men of the people died. And when the angel stretched out his hand over Jerusalem to destroy it, the Lord relented from the destruction and said to the angel who was destroying the people, it is enough, restrain your hand. And the angel of the Lord was by the threshing floor of Aruna, the Jebusite. That's 2 Samuel 24. So it's therefore not inconceivable that the destroyer in Egypt on the night of Passover was in fact an angel uh, just know that it, it's not clearly identified as the angel of death or the death angel. There was one defense against the destroyer in Exodus 12, verse 3. Speak to all the congregation of Israel, saying, On the tenth day of this month, every man shall take a lamb for himself, according to the house of his father, a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for the lamb, let him and his neighbor next to his house take it according to the number of persons. According to each man's need, you shall make your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male of the first year. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats. 
Now you shall keep it until the 14th day of the same month. Then the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill it at twilight. And they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and on the lintel of the houses where they eat it. And then they shall eat the flesh on that night, roasted in fire, with unleavened bread and with bitter herbs they shall eat it. Do not eat it raw, nor boiled at all with water, but roasted in fire, its head and its legs and its entrails. You shall let none of it remain until morning, and what remains of it until morning you shall burn with fire. And thus you shall eat it, with a belt on your waist and sandals on your feet and your staff in your hand. So you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. For I will pass through the land of Egypt on that night and will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And against all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgment. I am the Lord. Now the blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. When I see the blood, I will pass over you. And the plague shall not be on you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. Now, we say amen because we know that those little lambs pointed forward to Jesus, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Just like that lamb, Jesus was without blemish. He was perfect in every way. Just like that lamb, he was examined on the 10th day, came into Jerusalem uh, on that 10th day and hung around there for four days. And just like that lamb, Jesus was killed on the 14th day, just as the Passover lambs were being slain. The Israelites, however, knew nothing about Jesus. They were simply trusting in God, believing God that a little lamb's blood would save them from death and deliver them to a new life. It required a great deal of faith in order to believe that. And, and I can't even imagine the terror of that night. Uh, I mean, it, it's pretty, you know, it's pretty sterile here when you read it, but when you think about the firstborn of man and beast dying all throughout Egypt and the wailing and the crying, and this text says it's like nothing that ever happened before or will ever happen again, and this was happening thousands of years ago. You see all the carnage that we see all the time, and God says, yeah, but you don't understand how awful this was. And then in the land of Goshen, absolute silence. Dogs didn't even bark. You know, silence can be eerie sometimes, can it? Sometimes you wake up in the middle of the, ever woke up in the middle of the night when there's a power shortage? All of a sudden, everything goes off and your body like reacts to it and you wake up and you think something's wrong. Then your mind flashes to a horror movie and you think it's just some guy out there flipping the switch and run! But anyway, that's just me. <laughs> and so it was, it was just terrifying. I don't know, geography-wise, how close they were to the Egyptians and whether they could hear their screams or, or not. I gather, I, I'm guessing that they could. And then absolute silence all throughout Israel. It's eerie and weird. And, and all they had was a lamb that they had eaten and, and its blood on the doorpost to keep them from this. Notice the elements of the first Passover. They slaughtered the lamb and roasted it. They put its blood on the doorposts. They ate unleavened bread and bitter herbs. They had a belt on, the men did, meaning their long outer garment was tucked in and ready for travel. Their sandals were on their feet, and there was a staff in their hand. It was a hasty leaving of Egypt that was going to take place. That's it. There's no other instruction. No other liturgy was given. In Exodus 12, 14, we read, So this day shall be to you a memorial, and you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations, you shall keep it as a feast by an everlasting ordinance. Now, when the Jews finally built the tabernacle and later the temple, Passover changed slightly. In Deuteronomy 12, 14, we read, 
um, or excuse me, 16.1, observe on the month of Abib and keep the Passover to the Lord your God, for in the month of Abib the Lord your God brought you out of Egypt by night. Therefore you shall sacrifice the Passover to the Lord your God from the flock and the herd in the place where the Lord chooses to put his name. You shall not eat leavened bread with it. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread with it. That is the bread of affliction, for you came out of the land of Egypt in haste, that you may remember the day in which you came out of the land of Egypt all the days of your life. No leaven shall be seen among you in all your territory for seven days, nor shall any of the meat which you sacrificed the first day at twilight remain overnight until morning. You may not sacrifice the Passover within any of your gates which the Lord God gives you, but at the place where the Lord your God chooses to make his name abide. There you shall sacrifice the Passover at twilight, at the going down of the sun, at the time you came out of Egypt. And you shall roast it and eat it at the place which the Lord your God chooses, and in the morning you shall turn and go to your tents. So the lamb needed to be sacrificed where God abode on the earth, and that now was the tabernacle and later the temple. And so instead of uh, being a home celebration, this became a pilgrimage, a pilgrimage feast. Uh, it was one of the three annual pilgrimages where Jewish men and families, if possible, came to Jerusalem and they celebrated the Passover there. Uh, even though it says to eat it in the place where the Lord your God chooses, it became the tradition to take the meat of the sacrifice and celebrate Passover more intimately where you were staying in or around Jerusalem. And so Passover went through some changes, some biblical changes. And so God said, here's what you're going to do uh, in Exodus but then once they got into the land, they were going to be able to celebrate it differently because God was going to dwell among them in the tabernacle and the temple. Thus, we see Jesus in the Gospels eating the Passover with his disciples. Or do we? Interesting. Bible.org says, and I quote, The precise nature of the meal which the Lord shared with his disciples on the night in which he was betrayed is one of the most warmly debated topics of New Testament history and interpretation. So... Jesus, of, of course, was the final Passover lamb. Since he was killed on Calvary's cross just as the lambs in the temple were being slain on the 14th, how could he and his disciples have eaten Passover lamb the night before his crucifixion, the night before the lambs were slain? And so it's, a, it's a, one of those Bible mystery kind of things that you have to work out. One commentator put it like this. He said, according to John... Jesus died just when the Passover sacrifice was being offered and before the festival began. Any last meal would have taken place the night before or even earlier. It certainly could not have been a Passover meal for Jesus died before the holiday had formally begun. And that's the end of the quote. Either the Last Supper was not a Passover meal or more likely it was an early Passover you do that sometimes at holidays, don't you? Have you ever celebrated Thanksgiving a day before or a day after or a week after Thanksgiving because family can't make it and you say, well, we'll just celebrate, you know, next week when Uncle Ralph comes and, and stuff. Or you celebrate several times. And so it, it's not unheard of that you would mess around with the dates. Of course, celebrating Passover early seems unbiblical because all of this stuff is so strictly monitored. But one scholar argues that during the days of the second temple, the time of Jesus, there were, in fact, two nights on which it was lawful to celebrate. It was due to the use of a different calendar, and it was practical, giving the priests sufficient time to slaughter the literally thousands of lambs. I mean, you think of, uh, I think 
I've said, we've talked about this before. I think a lot of times the numbers of pilgrims that were at Jerusalem is exaggerated. So I've heard Bible teachers say there were two million people in Jerusalem at Passover, and I think that's an exaggeration, and not just me, but others do as well. But there were, let's say, 100,000 pilgrims. I mean, that's a, you know, even if you divide that, uh, you know, by 10 uh, in terms of family members or something like that, you still have a lot of lambs to sacrifice, and it would be easier to do that over a two-night period than all at once. Uh, another source says, and this is more important, the Dead Sea Scrolls show there were divergent calendars in use, and it's possible that a separate tradition was, in fact, in vogue at the time of Jesus' passion. One more source, the Galileans or the Pharisees ate the Passover on Thursday night, and the Judeans and the Sadducees ate the Passover on Friday night. Hence, Jesus and his disciples were among those who ate Passover on Thursday since a great number of people would be eating the Passover on Thursday, the priest would accommodate them as in other years with an earlier Passover sacrifice. Now, obviously, scholars are going to debate this forever, but Jesus' Last Supper was probably an early Passover, but it doesn't seem at all elaborate. Now that we've established that it was probably Passover and that there were two of them, it seems very simple when you read about it in the Gospels. Um, he, he, there's, there's not a lot of detail given about the Passover. Uh, today, there's an elaborate ritual Passover Seder. It's filled with additional stuff you don't read about in the Bible. Jesus may have done some of that stuff, but probably not. What kind of stuff? Well, here's a modern liturgy, or liturgy just means order of service. It's, it's a word I'm using to make myself seem smarter than you. Uh, but... Uh, uh, the order of service uh, that in, in a modern Seder, during the course of the evening you will have four cups of wine, veggies dipped in salt water, flat, dry, cracker-like bread called matzah, bitter herbs, often horseradish without additives, and romaine lettuce dipped into kerosene, a paste of nuts, apples, pears, and wine, a festive meal that may contain time-honored favorites like chicken soup and gevelta fish. Each item has its place in a 15-step choreographed combination of tastes, sounds, sensations, and smells that have been with the Jewish people for millennia. Now, obviously, most of this is nowhere to be found in the Bible. We didn't read about any of those kinds of things in Exodus or in Deuteronomy. And even if you're marginally familiar with the Last Supper, and we believe it's a Passover meal, there's a lot of things that Jesus didn't do, but, you know, we tend to assume he did them because we've gone to modern Passover seders and we think that that was, you know, set in stone. Uh, where does that stuff come from? Well, it's interesting. The Mishnah, you've heard of, of this, it's a compilation of Jewish oral traditions. And so the Jewish rabbis would pass down uh, the traditions of the Jews and the practices of the Jews orally from generation to generation. It, it was written, the Mishnah, at the beginning of the third century A.D., so well after Jesus died and rose from the dead. Uh, and it was written to preserve the teachings of the Second Temple period. One section of the Mishnah is the Peshashim. It's the tenth and final chapter of which discusses the order of the Passover. It's there that some, but not all, of the elements of the modern Seder appear. So the question is, how can we be sure that the Peshashim is accurate? Well, according to the Encyclopedia Judaica, not the Wikipedia, uh, 
and they say, this is a Jewish encyclopedia, they say it is accepted that Judah the prince, weird name, but that was the guy who authored the Mishnah and the Peshashim, he added, deleted, and rewrote his source material during the process of redacting the Mishnah. And so what that basically is saying is it's a preserved oral tradition that has been added to or, or subtracted from. It was his editing of what they believe to be the tradition of the Second Temple period. So the modern Passover Seder developed after the destruction of the Second Temple. It's been edited and added to over the centuries. And so we can't really project back onto Jesus any extra-biblical liturgy that we cannot be certain of. So Jesus may have done some of those things. He may have had romaine lettuce uh, and carouset and, you know, horseradish, uh, but probably not. And we can't say for sure that he did because it's not in the Bible. One scholar concluded Jesus and his disciples would have visited the temple to slaughter their sacrifice. Then they would have consumed it along with unleavened bread and bitter herbs as required by the book of Exodus. Presumably, they would have engaged in conversation pertinent to the occasion. More than that, we cannot know for sure. So, uh, and, you know, I don't want to kill anybody's uh, excitement about going to a Passover Seder or sitting down and going through that liturgy. It's just we need to be aware that all of that developed much later. And uh, among Jews, different groups of Jews, the Passover is always developing. There are some Passover seders that have worked in the Holocaust and a celebration of the, uh, the deliverance from the Holocaust. And so it's kind, of an, it's kind of like where we change our Christmas traditions. You know, you probably have some Christmas traditions, and, and as maybe as the kids get older, you change them or alter them, and, um, you know, some things you keep doing, other things you add or subtract. And, and so that, that's what happens with the seder. So if you want to go to a Passover Seder and see how Passover was celebrated, just read the Bible first and see what the Bible says in terms of what we know for sure Jesus did, uh, and then realize a lot of the other stuff is uh, added, and we're not sure how accurate it is because it follows an oral tradition that wasn't written down until the third century, and then we know that it was edited depending on what that guy, Judah the Prince, uh, thought should be in and shouldn't be in. Should we observe Passover? No. We're told by the Apostle Paul, 1 Corinthians 5, 7, for indeed Christ, our Passover, was sacrificed for us. I've already suggested a few ways Jesus fulfilled the Passover. Here are a couple more. The bones of the Passover lamb were not to be broken, according to Exodus 12, 46. You remember the Roman soldiers in charge of crucifixion regularly broke the legs of the criminals on the cross because it would keep them from being able to catch a breath. Uh, and uh, once their legs were broken and they couldn't push themselves up, they would suffocate, and that's how they would die. And so they would regularly break the legs. But when they went to Jesus, he was already dead because he had dismissed his own spirit, being in control of the crucifixion. And so not a bone of his body was broken, fulfilling a prophecy and also the t uh, typology of the Passover lamb. And the blood of the Passover lamb had to be applied in a prescribed manner. We read that. It had to be put on the door in just a certain way. Jesus' blood must be applied to sinners' hearts by believing in him. It's the application of the blood. It's, uh, it's the believing in Jesus and his sacrifice for us that saves us. 
What Jesus has fulfilled, we need not point forward to by observance. Communion and water baptism are the only ordinances for the church. And um, I don't know if you caught it or not, but when I went through and we were talking about Passover, same with all the feasts, I emphasized that they are a covenant between God and Israel. They are not a covenant between God and other nations, and they certainly have nothing to do with the church. If you want scripture, there's plenty of them, but Colossians 2, 16 and 17 is good. Paul says, let no one judge you in food or in drink or regarding a festival or a new moon or Sabbaths. So when he talks about food and drink, he's not talking about, you know, can a Christian drink alcohol or can you eat meat sacrificed to idols? He's talking about the whole Jewish system of uh, ritual diet and what they could and couldn't eat. Uh, And so he says, don't let anybody judge your food or your festival keeping, or your new moon, or your Sabbaths. In other words, you, you're not obligated to keep any of those things, and no one should come to you and say you have to do this. So when your friends, well-meaning friends come and they say you have to keep the Sabbath, uh, Paul the Apostle says, no, you don't. And, and, um, and he goes on to explain why. In verse 17 of Colossians 2, he says, these are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance is Christ. And so Passover was like a shadow. Jesus is the substance. He's the real deal. We don't shrink back into the shadows as Christians. We walk forward in the light. There's every few years, there's a movement towards returning to what folks believe are more spiritual early church um, uh, ceremonies and things. And, And what they amount to basically is is candles and incense and different things like that. And those things, they do, they, they affect you sensually. You, know, they, you think, wow, this seemed more spiritual. This is certainly a lot more spiritual than coming to Calvary, uh, you know, where all we do is study the Word and sing a few songs. I mean, I, I really felt engaged when I went through that prayer labyrinth or, or when I, I got to that candle or when the incense was filling the air and stuff. And, and yet, all of that is a step backwards into shadow when we have the substance, which is Jesus Christ. We have a relationship. And I'm really adamant about this. Uh, anytime that people want to draw you back away from just a personal relationship with Christ and put something in between, put some incense or uh, an object uh, in between you and Jesus, you know, when Jesus died on the cross, the veil in the temple was rent in half, so we have immediate access. We don't need to build new temples where we feel more spiritual but we have less relationship. And so we want to walk forward in the light. God changed Israel's calendar, and he made the month of Nisan, when Passover is celebrated on their calendar, he made that their first month. To this day, the nation of Israel has both a civil and a religious calendar that start on different days. When we get to the Feast of Trumpets, we're going to say that it's the first day of the year. And you're going to think, wait a minute, I thought Passover was the first day of the year. Well, Passover is the first day of the religious year, because it's the day they were delivered from uh, Egypt and born as a nation. But Rosh Hashanah, the Feast of Trumpets, is the first day of their civil year. Uh, and we'll get into a little bit of that. And so it's a very important holiday to get things going. From a spiritual point of view, everything starts at the Passover. When someone believes in Jesus as the Lamb that was sacrificed for their sin, they're born again and are a new creation. It's a whole new beginning for them as a child of God. And so uh, if you track 
like we sometimes do, all the way back to the Garden of Eden. We don't know what animal was slain, but you remember uh, when Adam and Eve covered themselves with fig leaves, um, and then God said, in a sense, he is, this is not going to do, uh, and he found uh, animal skins for them. Well, animals had to be sacrificed and killed uh, in order to provide those skins. And uh, because they seem to have taught their children, as we see uh, their son Abel uh, offering the sacrifice of his flock, it seems that probably the animals that were slain in the garden were lambs. And then you follow lambs all the way through being sacrificed, uh, and then it becomes more and more codified in, in uh, you know, Deuteronomy and all that, until finally Jesus steps forward out of time and history, and John the Baptist says, this is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And so in the garden, God said, I'm going to come as a man. I'm going to crush the serpent's head. He's going to bruise my heel, but I'm going to provide redemption for the human race. Uh, it starts with these lambs that, I slain, that were slain. And then you follow all the way through. And then when a Jew heard that, that this, this person, this Jesus of Nazareth, this is the Lamb. He's, it, it, would, it would all come rushing in on them that of all the lambs that were sacrificed from the garden forward, this is what they pointed to. This is the reality. And when he dies and when he rises from the dead, then we are delivered into a new life uh, and, and redeemed as God has promised. And so Passover filled with amazing symbolism, but we don't need to keep it or celebrate it in order to get the point. Jesus is our Passover. I take that to mean our relationship with Jesus functions as a Passover. We don't need to celebrate it. Now, if you want to go to a Seder, that's fine. You're not sinning by doing that. But don't think that you're, it's more spiritual to keep these Jewish feasts or that somehow the church needs to keep them. It's a step backwards, not a step in the light. Amen?